0: You're listening to the Men's Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Fiona Donison. Donison was a confident, strong, and well educated woman. She was grief stricken when her father passed away when she was young. Her dad had been a police officer in Scotland. Her mother still lived there, in Forres, Morayshire. It's reported that Fiona never got over his passing. When she finished school, she moved to Spain, where she worked as a nanny for five years. Eventually, she returned to the UK and began a career in the banking sector. She had a high-powered job as a credit manager in the city. She was a good worker and was successful, leading a very well-off lifestyle. She married Derek McCrow around 1993, and together they had two sons, born in 1995 and then 1998. However, their marriage wavered, and eventually, in 2003, Fiona divorced him. Fiona Donison met her second partner, Paul, while she was working... For a syndicate of Lloyd's Bank. He also had a high-powered job in the banking sector. She and Paul had a little girl, Mia, in 2004, who passed away from cot death. Though the police did investigate the death, nothing came of it. She was overjoyed when she went on to have two more children, a boy and then another girl. But she never seemed to recover from the loss of little baby Mia. Fiona lost her job in 2009 and became depressed. After the loss of her job, her marriage began to become strained, and she thought that Paul was cheating on her with an old school friend of his. She also had mounting credit card debt, as she lived well beyond her means. On top of all that, there was some question of whether the other two older boys got on with Paul or not. In November of 2009, Custody of the older boys was court-ordered to Fiona's former husband, Mr. McCrow. Fiona then abruptly left the home that she shared with Paul and their children, Harry and Elise, giving no explanation for her departure to Paul. Her behaviour had become ever-increasingly more erratic from July 2009 through to early 2010, which would culminate in an horrific event. On the morning of Wednesday, the 27th of January, 2010, Fiona Donison arrived into Heathfield Police Station in a distressed state. She had injuries on her that appeared to be self-inflicted, cuts to her wrists and arms. At first, police thought that she was just a distressed drunk person who had decided to take herself to the local station. That was until she told them that she had killed her two little children that was all that they could get out of her. She wouldn't even tell the police exactly where the two children could be found. She was arrested, and the police went to search the area. The bodies of two children, Harry and Elise, were found in the boot of Donison's silver Nissan car on a nearby street. The car was parked near to the home that she had shared with her former partner, Paul Donison, in Heathfield, East Sussex, which was a mere 300 metres from the local police station. Donison had mentioned the car to the police, and so they searched for it, and when they found it, they forced entry into the boot with a crowbar. When the boot popped open, they saw two hold-all bags, like two black sports bags, basically. Inside the bags were the bodies of the two children, wrapped in black plastic bin bags. Harry and Elise had been found, and a murder investigation was now underway, though the police already had their confessed culprit in custody their mother, Fiona Donison. Both Fiona's rented home in Lightwater and the house belonging to Paul's ex-wife Linda in the same town were searched by the police for any potentially relevant forensic evidence. The post-mortems of the two little children were carried out at King's College Hospital in London, and it was confirmed that the children had likely died of asphyxiation. The examination also confirmed that they had been dead for less than a day when they had been discovered. Meanwhile, Fiona was taken to Eastbourne District General Hospital to treat the injuries she had inflicted upon herself, and for an overdose of night hall sleeping tablets, and for her distress. She was accompanied by a police guard. After treatment and medical assessments, Fiona was released back into police custody. As the investigation got underway, police realized that they had, in fact, had contact with this family in recent times. In recent weeks, in fact. Fiona Donison had told the police that her ex-partner was violent, and that he often flew into rages and punched holes in the walls. She told them that, a week before Elise and Harry's death, he had said to her, quote, If I cannot have my children, I have nothing to live for. So I'm going to kill you now. We can go together. End quote. A number of days before the murder of Harry and Elise, Fiona had thrown a brick through the window of the Heathfield home and again the police were called. She refused to leave the premises when they arrived. Paul Donison had actually been arrested after these allegations and was released on police bail. His conditions were that he was to reside at the Heathfield address and could not contact Fiona Donison. Later, during Fiona's trial, Prosecution counsel would tell the court that the assault claim against Paul had not met the prosecution service's charging criteria, and that the matter would never have made it to court. They said that the allegation would have fallen apart very quickly, and would have been forgotten had intervening events not occurred. Social workers were involved with the family in January 2010 because of alleged conflict between the two parents and to ensure the safeguarding of the children. They carried out an assessment, but declined to take the children into care despite evidence of violence in the home. The Sunday before the murders, Fiona had turned up at the home in Heathfield and had barricaded herself with the two kids into the house. The police were called and in order to keep the peace, Paul, in the end, decided to pack an overnight bag and leave Fiona and the kids at the home that night, despite the fact that she was renting other accommodation for them in Lightwater. The next day, when he returned to the house, it was a complete mess. Fiona had turned the place upside down. Cupboards were locked, pictures were askew and turned around, and keys for internal doors were hidden. Paul went about tidying up the place and he had the locks changed. The police investigation in the aftermath of the murders began in earnest to try and figure out what the hell had happened and what had gone wrong that would drive a mother to murder her own two children, barely more than babies. Unsurprisingly, during the course of the police investigation into the murders, questions were asked about the death of Paul and Fiona's first child, Mia. She was initially found to have had SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, also known as cot death. She had been just nine months old when she passed away. Fiona had found the baby unresponsive and had called 999. In the call, initially Fiona is heard screaming and crying, but then she seemingly collected herself and calmly said to the dispatcher, quote, she's not moving at all. Her eyes are completely shut. Oh no, what have I done? End quote. When charges were laid against Donnison, there was initially a charge there for the murder of little Mia too. Police believed that Fiona had in fact killed her first child with Paul. They said she had done this in order to get back at him for attending his ex-wife's birthday party, but it was determined by the court that there was not enough evidence to sustain this charge and a judge dismissed it. Mia's death was never discussed at the trial that would eventually come about. Fiona Donison was formally charged on the 29th of January by the Sussex Police and was brought before Lewes magistrate court. She was remanded in custody and there was no application made on her behalf for bail. The courtroom had over a dozen of her family members present in it, some who were visibly upset. When she was led away back into detention, two people shouted at her, We love you, Fiona. Donison's trial began in August of 2011, in Lewes Crown Court, and despite the nature of the crimes committed, there was very little attention paid to the proceedings by the media. Paul Donison, now 48, described his relationship with Fiona. He told the court how he and his former partner had never actually married, that Fiona had changed her name by deed poll without telling him. They had first met when they were both working at Lloyd's, while the two of them were married to other people. A few months into their relationship, Fiona found that she was pregnant. After the death of their child Mia, before her first birthday, Paul decided that he would move in with Fiona to help her deal with such a terrible loss. He said that he had cleared Fiona's substantial debt when they started their relationship, She had racked up quite a lot of credit card debt up to that point, it would seem. While on the stand, Paul could not even look at his former partner as he described how much he loved his little children and the increasingly bizarre relationship he had with their mother. He said that Fiona was all hot and cold. He told the jury how he had returned home one day, five months before the children's deaths, to find that Fiona had moved out, taking the kids with her. He had absolutely no idea it was about to happen. In fact, they had just returned home from a family holiday in Ireland. Paul had gone to work on the Monday and returned to an empty house, and only a note from Fiona saying that she was leaving for the sake of the children. He told the court that he had no idea what was wrong. He described how, at first, he had just run around the house, not believing that they were all really gone looking for any sign of them. He also went into detail about how, in the months after Fiona's abrupt departure, his relationship with her was very difficult, especially when it came to the kids. At first, she wouldn't even tell him where they were. It emerged that when she left, she had moved into a rented house not a hundred metres from Paul's ex-wife. He said, if he was even a few minutes late to her new place in Lightwater to see the children, she would absolutely refuse him access. She would also cancel their visitations with little to no notice, or without any real reason. Paul told the court that he thought Fiona was using the children to control him. If he didn't do as she wanted, then she would deny him access. He had tried on a number of occasions to repair the relationship with Fiona, to get them back together, but each time Fiona would change her mind. But he finally decided that he'd had enough, and in early January, he left her for good, breaking off their relationship permanently this time. He went on to describe his last meeting with Harry and Elise. He had just returned from a business trip to the US and found that Fiona and the kids were actually staying in his house in Heathfield. Harry was still up, Paul had bought a little toy police car for him, and when the little boy saw his daddy, he wrapped his arms around Paul's neck and gave him a huge hug. Paul said he looked up and saw Fiona glaring at him. She had a, quote, look of absolute hatred and evil on her face, end quote. Fiona then ushered Harry back into his bedroom to settle him down to sleep for the night. Elise was asleep in her bedroom when Paul got home. He crept into the room and gave her a little kiss on the cheek. He said that she'd wiggled her nose at the tickle from it, but that she didn't wake. That was the last time he saw his little kids. Paul was questioned by the defense for details of his intimate relationships. He admitted that he had indeed started to see an old school friend of his, Alison Shimmons, he said that the relationship with her was refreshing, it was uncomplicated, and a nice change from his relationship with Fiona. He told the court that Fiona had found out about the relationship when she had looked at text messages on his phone during an arranged family day out with the kids. Fiona had even called Alison herself, ten days before the murders, and said, quote, if he's sleeping with you, he will never see the kids, End quote. It appears that when Paul finally moved on after her sudden upheaval of their lives, Fiona was having second thoughts, or possibly couldn't handle not being the focus of Paul's attention. Fiona went to Alison Shimmon's home on more than one occasion and asked the other woman why she wouldn't leave Paul alone. Though Fiona had taken the first step in ending her relationship, it was clear that she wanted things kept on her terms alone. She had not expected, nor did she accept, that Paul might move on to another relationship. The court heard evidence of Fiona's movements the day of the children's death. There was CCTV footage of Donison going into two supermarkets and buying painkillers, sleeping tablets, and a bottle of water. It was put to the jury that Fiona had then returned to the rented house in Lightwater, where she suffocated the children with pillows while they slept. She wrapped the little bodies of Harry and Elise in bin bags and then put them into the sports bags. Donison then put the bodies of her children into the boot of her car. After this, she drove to the house in Heathfield that she had shared with Paul, over 90 kilometres away. Lightwater is an area just outside the metro area of London, not too far from the city considering London commutes, It's 27 miles, or just over an hour's train journey, but Heathfield might as well be a world away. It's by no means a short drive, and it would have taken her at least an hour and a half. She parked the car a few streets away from the home in a lame attempt to hide it, and then returned to the house where she broke a window. She entered the home bringing with her knives— It was alleged that her plan was to kill Paul as well, and to possibly blame the deaths of the children on him. But Paul had spent the night with his new girlfriend, and wasn't there. The next morning, she took an overdose of the sleeping tablets she had bought, Nytol, and walked the short distance to Heathfield Police Station. She had a suicide note in her handbag, addressed to her two older sons, It said that she hoped the boys would get everything that belonged to them, and said that she was sorry that Paul Donison had made their lives miserable. It said, quote, By the time you read this, I will have gone to be with Harry, Elise, and Mia. The police gave evidence of an emotionless confession delivered by Donison, as well as her collapsing into a fit in the station after emitting a quote-unquote horrific sound. The court also heard from the officer who had searched Donison's car. He got emotional on the stand as he described finding the black bags in the boot, and that he had known immediately that the little boy he found was dead. He wasn't breathing, and there was mottling on his skin. The officer tearfully told the jury that he then had to open the second bag to confirm that Elisa's body was in fact inside it. Lynn taylor Rodo was the 52-year-old woman that Donison trusted as her nanny for her two small children, and she also gave evidence in the trial. She said that she saw Donison on January twenty-fifth, 2010, and that at the time Donison had seemed positive. Fiona had told her that she and her kids would be moving back into the family home in Heathfield, and that Fiona said she was looking forward to the move. Taylor Rhoda told the court that she had absolutely no concerns for Donison or her children when she saw them last. Taylor Rhoda's 22-year-old son, Sam, also saw Donison just before the murders occurred. He gave evidence that he ran into her on the 26th of January. She told him that she had had an argument with her ex at Heathfield, but despite this, Sam described her as appearing quite calm. At the time they saw her, both thought that Donison had been in the middle of making a move from her rented house in Lightwater, Surrey, back to her family home in Heathfield, East Sussex. She had even been staying with Lynn and her family while the move was being sorted out. Fiona had been seen cleaning the rented house the weekend before, and a to let sign had appeared on the property in and around the time of the murders. On the night of the 26th of January, Fiona phoned Lynn at her home to let her know that she and the two children would be spending the night at the rented house in Lightwater and would not be over to theirs. That was the night that Fiona suffocated her two little children. It was also reported in the media that, days before killing her two children, Fiona had also had contact with an old friend. She had written to this friend and had told her about how well things were going for her at the time. Fiona told her that the job she had now with the bank allowed her to work from home for three days during the week, which was allowing her to spend more time with her kids. Fiona told her friend that she felt really lucky to be able to do that, to be able to spend that time with Harry and Elise. Fiona had also posted photos to Facebook of her two little ones playing in the snow days before she killed them. Her friend, who spoke out, told reporters that this was proof that the woman had just snapped. There must have been some trigger, she said, something that had happened that would send Donison over the edge. To that end, Evidence was presented to the court by her defense that Fiona suffered from narcissistic personality disorder and had an inflated sense of her own importance and entitlement. Her lawyers insisted that she had suffered from a mental break at the time of the murders. They informed the court that she had no memory of the events. Fiona herself did not take the stand. Medical experts testified to their assessments of Fiona Donison while she was hospitalized after the murders, Dr. Amory Clark took the stand and told the court that he had carried out a series of tests on Fiona. He concluded that she most certainly was suffering from depression at the time of the murders. Further tests, he concluded, assessed her for psychopathic tendencies, and on these tests, she had the lowest possible score. Dr. Clark told the jury that this had a bearing on the prosecution's assertions that Donison was malingering, that is, pretending to have psychological or mental health problems. Psychopaths, according to Clark, tend to malinger and say that they are traumatized or don't remember their crimes in a manipulative way in an attempt to lessen their responsibility for their crimes. According to Clark, Donison showed no signs of being calculating or manipulative in this way. However, other tests, albeit consisting of a narrower range, showed that Fiona Donison was in fact malingering, and that she was making up the symptoms, such as memory loss, in order to provide herself a defence to murder. Nurses on the ward where Fiona was treated immediately after the murder said that, although Donison said she couldn't eat or sleep, They observed her sleeping for full nights, and also said that she took her meals when they were presented to her. This type of malingering that she was accused of would have been quite separate from the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. Along with feelings of entitlement and an inflated sense of importance, there is often a lack of empathy, and sufferers can be manipulative and focused on power or success. Narcissistic personality disorder may explain Fiona's propensity for spending money that she didn't have, as well as the need to show her successes combined with vanity and a fragile ego that goes along with this disorder. That definition of this disorder goes some way to explaining how it is that this middle-class so-called mumsy mum might end up killing her two young children. This doesn't really sound like a defence to murder, but her legal team was relying on the defence of insanity to try and frustrate the prosecution of their client. Now, we've come across this defence before, back in episode 4 when we heard about John George Haig and his acid bath murders. I think it's been long enough that we could all do with a little refresher about how the insanity defence works in the UK, and Ireland for that matter. Insanity has been a defense to murder since the 14th century, and so has basically always been a feature of the common law systems of justice and civil law that we in Ireland interact with. This is the same system that you find in the UK, most of the USA, Canada, and Australia, among others. There was very little change in this law up until the 18th century, with the current formulation in place having been decided in 1843. In the trial of Daniel McNaughton, defendants wishing to avail of insanity as a defense have to prove that they suffered from a mental defect or disease that, at the time of the crime committed, meant that they could not tell the difference between right and wrong, or did not reasonably know the consequences for their actions. So basically, did they know what they were doing? And if they did, did they know what they were doing was wrong? What the courts are looking for here is, wait for it, mens rea, some evidence that the perpetrator of the crime had a guilty mind, that they knew the nature and quality of their actions. But Donison's team's efforts to argue that Fiona was so out of her mind that she hadn't known that killing her own children was wrong unsurprisingly failed. Fiona was found unanimously guilty of murder by the jury and sentenced to a minimum of 32 years in jail. Mr. Justice Nickel described the murders as, quote, deliberate and wicked acts, end quote, and went on to say directly to Donison, why you did this defies logical explanation. It seems it can only have something to do with your feelings for Paul Donison, the children's father and your former partner. He said the guilty verdicts were indicative that the jury had rejected outright the argument that the murders were due to Donison's depression and had only happened because she wasn't in her right mind. Paul Donison gave a statement to the press from the steps of the courthouse after the sentencing of his ex-partner. He said that he wished Britain had retained the death penalty and said that the murderer of his two little children had more rights than he did. He stated, quote, Taking a life is the most obscene act that anyone can commit, which, in my view, should receive an equal punishment. The pain and agony my family and I have suffered over the last year and a half, over the murder of my two beautiful children, Harry and Elise, has been almost unbearable. The lives of these two beautiful, innocent, and wonderful babies were taken from them in a most horrible and disgusting way. They did not stand a chance the saddest thing today is that they will not grow older and enjoy their lives, End quote. Fiona Donison's appeal was heard on the 22nd of May 2012. Her defense team were arguing that the sentence was manifestly excessive, and the Court of Appeal in London was prepared to hear evidence of her mental state. But her appeal failed. In November 2013, the results of a review carried out by the East Sussex Healthcare NHS Trust, which stretched back over three years, was released. It was their policy to carry out this kind of review in any case where a child under the age of two died suddenly or unexpectedly. The review was carried out by Surrey Safeguarding Children Board, and they identified a number of points in time when authorities may have intervened, which would have resulted in a different outcome in this case. They recommended that authorities should bear in mind that child abuse crosses all boundaries, and that they may have been unduly influenced by Donison's gender and class. Ultimately, the review concluded that there were lessons to be learned in some areas of practice, but at the time, there had been no way of predicting what the outcome of this particular case was to be. They said, quote, There was no information to suggest that such an extreme act of violence was likely. End quote. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for us to hear in the news that a parent has killed their child. Often, it's a situation of family annihilation, where a father, for whatever reason, believes that his family would be better off dead and he kills his kids, wife, and then himself. Other times we hear of a young or otherwise vulnerable woman who finds themselves with an unplanned pregnancy, and they hide this and kill their baby once it's born, in an attempt to conceal the whole affair. When a mother seems to have planned out the murder of her older child or children, this seems to us far more rare, and is far more of an anathema to us. It seems unconceivable to carry out such an act. And yet, it's happened it happened in this case and it'll probably happen again in 1983 Diane Downs arrived into an emergency room with her blood-soaked children and claimed that a strange man had attacked them but of course it was her who had shot and killed her 7-year-old daughter and seriously injured her other two children before inflicting a superficial bullet wound on her own arm in 1987 Deborah Jenner Tyler stabbed her three-year-old daughter to death. Apparently, she had been working a lot, was under a lot of stress, and her little girl had been acting up that day. In 1994, Dora Luz Duran Rostow stabbed her children, daughters aged nine and four and a son aged eight. She never showed remorse. Also in 1994, Susan Smith told police that a black man had stolen her car with her two sons in it, they were 3 and 14 months at the time. In reality, she had strapped them into their car seats and pushed her car into a lake. In 2010, Shaquan Dooley suffocated her two sons and then strapped them into her car before driving it into a local river. So, unfortunately, these cases happen more often than we'd probably like to think. In fact, children under the age of 8 are more likely to be killed by their mothers than their fathers. This may be due to a little understood condition that is only becoming widely recognized clinically in the last number of years, postpartum psychosis. We've all heard of postpartum depression and the effects that it has on new mothers and that it can affect women even up to two years after the birth of their baby. Postpartum psychosis is a separate and different diagnosis, although not currently recognized in the DSM-5, and statistically affects one in 1,000 women. Usually the onset is relatively soon after giving birth, but there are very few studies specifically of postpartum psychosis, given that it's not yet a recognized diagnosis. It's more common in women who already have a psychiatric diagnosis like bipolar or schizoaffective disorder, and having a close relative suffer from it also increases your chances of developing it postpartum. Symptoms include manic-like behaviours or a severely low mood, and these moods can change very quickly. Most notable for our purposes are symptoms such as having odd beliefs that are untrue, something like believing that your child is possessed by the devil, or that they've won the lottery, that kind of thing. Hallucination can also occur. The causes of postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis are unknown but in the case of postpartum psychosis it is a medical emergency and women and their partners are urged to seek treatment immediately possibly the most well-known case of postpartum psychosis which ended with disastrous results is that of andrea yates in 2001 she drowned her five children in their own bathtub she was suffering from postpartum psychosis and had a long history of mental health problems that went undertreated including previous incidents of postpartum psychosis. She was hospitalized for a bout of this along with a suicide attempt in 1999, after the birth of her fourth child. After this, she had been urged by her psychiatrist not to have any more children, but she and her husband's religious beliefs meant that this advice was disregarded. There's a question of how much responsibility her husband, Rusty, should take for the deaths that occurred just a little over six months after the birth of their last child. He had been quite insistent that the family would have as many children as God allowed. Eventually, after an appeal and on retrial, Andrea Yates was found not guilty by reason of insanity by a jury of the Texas court. Fiona Donison, however, did not have postpartum psychosis. Crown Court was told that Fiona was a woman who had a personality disorder, which did affect her daily life. The kind of personality disorder that you can live your entire life with, without ever hurting anyone. But things started to spiral out of control for her when she suspected that her partner was cheating on her, and she lost her high-powered job. She moved herself and Harry and Elise out of the family home in an attempt to control Paul and feel in control of her own life once again. For months, he tried to appease her, tried to put their relationship back together, but Fiona's fragile ego and sense of self had been shaken by the thought that he was looking outside of their relationship, and by what she saw as a diminishing of her social status. When she realised that Paul had had enough of the instability and unpredictability of their relationship, When he finally broke things off with her and started another relationship with an old school friend, she did in fact snap. In her twisted understanding of the world, she thought that she could regain control of her life by killing her kids and possibly by placing the blame on her ex. But this mental break was not psychosis. It was not insanity. She knew what she was doing, and knew that it was wrong when she was doing it. Otherwise, why hide the bodies of her children, or present herself at the local police station when whatever her ultimate plan had been had failed? The horror of this case is striking, but what's also striking is the fact that we heard so little about it. Unlike Diane Downs or Andrea Yates, the crimes and trial of Fiona Donison passed by with very little public or media interest shown – Perhaps it's simply the cultural difference between the UK and the US, or maybe it's the sheer horror of the murders of two little children that the public turned its face from. But in the UK, three children a month are reportedly killed by their parents, and we hear very little about those situations of family breakdown, abuse, violence, and neglect. So perhaps it is in fact unsurprising that the name of this mother who killed her children has gone unmentioned for so very long. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe in your favourite podcast app and leave us ratings and reviews. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Mens Pod and get in touch by email to mensreapod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to our supporters on Patreon. This week we say welcome aboard to Louise Caps. Amy who digital and Deborah Henning. Guys, I cannot thank you enough. Every donation helps to keep this podcast going and I am forever grateful to all my generous donors on patreon.com. Thanks to some of our more recent five star reviewers over at Apple podcasts. Thanks to MD Coley 25 from the UK. Thank you for your five stars. Thank you to Mariah 1973, particularly your comments about the research. I'm glad you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks to Elkman66 for your five stars. And also thank you to Missy Morzine. Thanks so much for all your lovely comments and support. It really does mean the world to me. As always, thank you to Rona McHugh for help with sound. Our theme song is Quinsong First Dance by Kevin McLeod. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for this week's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Next time on the Mens Rea Podcast, we're over to Scotland to ask the perpetual question of whether the butler did it. Till then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Shro, go away. This podcast.